So my name is Christy Trinier, and I'm really happy to be back at the AGA. I was previously a curator here, and I have a new role at the BAM Center, but it's really nice to come back and have such a warm welcome from my colleagues here, so thank you very much. And tonight we are here for the Artists in Conversation program with Blaine Campbell. So Blaine's large-scale photographic installation asks us to question the processes and images of development and topologies that have dramatically shifted our regional landscapes. Blaine Campbell received a BFA in photography at Emily Carr University and a bachelor's degree and master's in science degrees in mathematics at the University of Waterloo and University of Calgary, respectively. Blaine's works in photography, sculpture, and video have been represented at various galleries in Canada and Europe, and the artist is represented by Republic Gallery in Vancouver. During my work as the public art director at the City of Edmonton, I was really interested in the processes of how land management occurs. There was all kinds of um, annexation processes, transfers of ownership, of, and learning about how land becomes part of a personal individual family's registered possession from Crown land or other sources, how it's subdivided and all of those interesting processes. This research into how land annexation works and the way that our um, land becomes neighborhoods, I think is a really interesting and political aspect of how power and shared community can develop in our cities and suburban communities. So with this in mind, I had some very interesting conversations with Blaine Campbell about his practice and his interest in documenting suburban growth, um, et cetera, and helping us to see the way that land management occurs as a subject matter. So with these thoughts in mind, I just wanted to preface our conversation. And I really welcome you here. And I'd also like to significantly thank Rose Boutillier, who's here, from Remi Martin Museum in Saskatoon. And she has written the essay, which is located in the catalog. And the catalog is available downstairs. There's also copies in the gallery tonight. So Blaine is going to tell us a little bit about his previous work. We'll look through some images together. I'll ask some questions and we'll have a conversation. Then I welcome you to ask anything that you like and join in. And then we'll go in and have a preview of the exhibition. And at 7.30, we can all join downstairs for the opening of the other exhibitions that are on tonight at the AGA. So thank you and please join me in welcoming Blaine. Thanks for coming. Um, preamble of previous topics. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just do a quick run through of some previous work that's uh, particularly tied into this exhibition or this project. Speak um, right into the mic no, so I can sorry. hear you. Um, <laughs> I had a long-standing interest in landscape, uh, particularly through photography. Uh, I, I came to photography primarily as a hobby initially when I was back in the days when I was uh, studying other things. Um, and, and then eventually went to art school, uh, decided to get out of the industry and go to art school instead, and uh, chose photography as my primary medium. <clears throat> um, and when I was practicing as a hobby, I, it was mostly because I was in Calgary and going to the mountains a lot, <clears throat> and I was particularly interested in landscape as, as a, an aesthetic motif. <clears throat> um, when I went to art school and, and get more immersed in sort of the conceptual aspects of art making and practice, uh, landscape continued to be a subject of interest to me, 
And that particularly came to a head when I went to the Netherlands for six months on academic exchange. And I spent a lot of time looking at Dutch landscape because that has a, such a strong history within our practice. And it has very particular aesthetics to it, um, to the landscape itself. <clears throat> so part of my time there, I engaged in a photographic study of Dutch landscape. Um, I've only had a couple of examples for that in the slideshow. But that always resonated, uh, thinking back to Canadian landscape and Canadian ideals of landscape as sort of an untouched uh, natural wilderness. We have this, this sort of this mythos within Canada of <clears throat> landscape being this, landscape and nature being sort of this natural form that is untouched by man and, and is subject to uh, some degree of intervention and control, but is it's, there's still this ideal attached to it that it's a, a natural law state. Uh, in opposition to in, in opposition to Canadian landscape or I'm going to ask a question right there, actually, okay. because like I also lived in Holland. And one of the things, um, like if you if you haven't seen land development in the Netherlands, quite interesting. Of course, half of the country has been reclaimed from the sea, and so they're actually dredging up the soil, draining out the water, then creating canals and controlling it. Originally, like if if you travel throughout the Netherlands, you'll see. Um, that they have main canals and side streams, et cetera, but they're all quite symmetrical. But now they're trying to naturalize the canal system and make it look like little streams and rivers. And they actually came to the lower mainland in Vancouver, where Blaine had a lot of his practice. We're taking photos of you know, the tributaries and the streams and things like that and trying to mimic that in the Netherlands. So this kind of idea of creating a fake natural and so this idea of land reclamation and controlling the landscape is quite interesting. And that leads me to my very first question is, do you actually think that land can be controlled? Um, I think it is highly controlled, much more so than people really realize it is. Um, there's, sorry. Uh, again, there's this idea that, that the landscape we see is sort of untouched. So when you go for a walk, it's or you go for a hike, you're just, you're going out into nature, but oftentimes it's not necessarily the case. It's, uh, you know, it's, there's usually some degree of mediation involved in that process. There's an established trail, um, particularly there's usually established points of interest. So sort of the idealized location to take photograph of, which would now be a selfie of yourself in, in nature, um, which has been explored by some other artists previously. Um, but that, that's still a fundamentally controlled process in some way. Like it's not just wandering out into the wilderness and finding your own path. Yeah, the views are prescribed. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's still an attachment to the idea that when you go out for a hike or you go out into nature, you're just, you're going out into the wilds. But oftentimes uh, that's really not necessarily the case. Um, I think that actually reminds me of some statistic there was particularly to the United States, but uh, at some point it was impossible to be more than three miles or something from uh, like a civilized roadway or an established path anywhere in the continental United States. It's crazy. Fact, so. <laughs> um, so like there's a degree of impact that's always present, um, whether it's on a 
sort of a macroscopic level of say roadways or pathways or uh, certainly from an environmental standpoint the microscopic level in terms of pollution or degradation or that impact kind of extends all the way through. Yeah. And the degree manipulation to that sense. So that, that's particularly where the Dutch landscape resonated for me with Canadian landscape because we have that idea here versus the Dutch realization that uh, they have a very thorough understanding that their landscape is completely, completely constructed and manipulated and uh, there's often a process of actually uh, trying to interrupt that construction in a way to try to naturalize it. So planting trees in particular locations or maybe, maybe adding a false hill just to break up the flatness. Which fits back again here too, particular to the prairies because it's so flat here. So that kind of connects back to Dutch landscape too. It's true. Peter Hemingway, the architect who designed City Hall, he often tried to create the pyramid form in his architecture because he said the Canadian or the, the landscape specifically around Edmonton needed something to kind of jut out and grab your eye and anchor you, that it needed an anchor. And so he used the triangle form. So you can see that at the Matart Conservatory, um, many of the churches that he designed, some of which have been torn down for suburban housing. Um, and also, like City Hall right out the window, was informed by um, dub architects who were referencing Peter Hemingway. So this kind of ethos of trying to anchor the landscape or create something to look at has been happening for a really long time in this region, specifically. Yeah. But I think across Canada and too, and like I think back to uh, the Group of Seven and the degree to which they are idolized as or depictions of Canadian nature and wilderness. But if you delve into the history of Group of Seven, a lot of the paintings were done from the backs of rail cars and very selectively framed to sort of avoid the line that was just out of view from the painting that was actually depicted. Or they were walking just from their suburban homes in That's Toronto true. down into the ravine that was kind of controlled in their own neighborhood just a few blocks away. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Want to show the next one? Um, so just going back to the previous work too. Um, uh, again, looking, I, I've also looked at other construction marks and, and sort of that, that manipulation of landscape that occurs here as well. So more in an explicit way, something like this, which is uh, actually just happened to be a house next to where I was living at kind of that where that was torn down. Actually, historical, what might have qualified as a historical home, but a big duplex kind of got stuck in there instead. <coughs> um, and I uh, was interested in these kind of boundaries and, and explicit markers of demarcation within landscape modification, uh, and particularly along a long stretch of highway outside of Vancouver that went through a massive redevelopment. Uh, and because I was commuting back and forth through it for a few years uh, while I was teaching, I kind of saw that transformation take place and, and that just became a convenient subject of, of study for a while. <clears throat> I've also been interested in playing with scale and, 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 and playing with aspects of the photograph as a, as a medium. So <clears throat> uh, there's certainly an influence in terms of having studied in Vancouver and the stronger your photo conceptualism that is run through there. Uh, and 
artists who worked with large-scale photography. So <clears throat> um, I was probably influenced by that in terms of wanting to play with the scale to this degree. Uh, so something like this is a really substantially large print to produce as a photograph. Uh, but I'm interested in playing with that direct relation between the viewer and the image that way. There is something, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about your experience in Vancouver, because it definitely has influenced your practice as a photographer, both as a fine art photographer, working contemporary art practice, but also uh, documenting exhibitions. Blaine's one of the most accomplished commercial or uh, photographers relating to the documentation of exhibitions in Vancouver as well. And so this super high fidelity way that you're practicing as a photographer, um, I think somehow differs from the photo conceptual works of other artists like Jeff Wall, Stan Douglas, etc., who maybe were thinking more about the tableau or references like Ken Lum of advertising or commercial culture in the constructed image that they were making within this kind of conceptual approach to photography. But when I look at the images that you're making in your time in Vancouver, there's something more of the influence of your background in mathematics that I think also informs those works. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, a little bit more about your position as a photographer in Vancouver, a city defined by its photoconceptualist artists in terms of the art community and then also that discourse around it and how that informed your work um it's it's kind of hard for me to qualify in some degree because uh there's a going through emily carr which is, is uh very much a conceptually division uh, driven school i would say um picking the photo program there's not a lot of technical instruction it's very much more around uh conceptualization of uh, projects and for the most part, students are left to their own devices to figure out the technical end of things, often. Um, but the, the photoconceptualist's influence is very strong within Vancouver, and it's, it's very hard to place oneself within that context at times. Um, I, I'd almost say more of my practice developed in my time in the Netherlands. That was actually my most productive period. Uh, like I produced the largest volume of work in that six months. And, uh, the system there is so very different in that uh, it was sort of free reign. I didn't really meet with faculty at all. It was, I just went and did my own thing for the most part for six months. Um, yeah, it's more of an academy-based process where yeah, yeah, experimentation yeah. is encouraged rather than yeah. kind of the opposite, yeah, filling very, out tasks and following the practice of your yeah, very professors. Free as opposed yeah. to most art schools here, which is sort of you need to fit in usually three to five projects per term per class and uh, it's very deadline driven and uh, I've found that to kind of drive a lot of my practice as a result because I'm often just producing work towards an exhibition or it's not sort of free reign anymore it's sort of like I'm still driven by that school aesthetic of I need a project and I need something to work towards to get it done. At the ACU right? Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, we both studied at the same institution at different eras. I was in the master's program, and Blaine was in the undergrad program at different eras, but in the same building, which is an old chemistry factory in the eastern part of the Netherlands in a city called Enschede. And so we didn't know that until we'd actually been halfway through this exhibition that we'd both lived and trained in the same place that had a big impact on both of our separate careers. So 
which is kind of funny. Fun fact. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, to get back to your point about Vancouver photoconceptualism, I think it's something that uh, it's been very hard to place my practice within, uh, especially when I had my first exhibitions there. I felt a real pressure to conceptualize the exhibition and, and give it an adequate an adequately rigorous academic framework to justify its existence um, because there is such an extensive dialogue around our practice in Vancouver. Uh, there's a certain degree of stress around do you meet that standard or not to some right. degree. Um, a technical standard you're referring to or also a conceptual way of... More so a conceptual standard, okay. yeah. Not so much a technical standard because I think there's still enough flexibility within what's exhibited in Vancouver. Um, I mean, to your point that I document a lot of work, uh, that documentation process didn't actually, I didn't start doing that until I'd already actually started producing a relatively decent body of work. So I haven't seen that as a strong an influence. I'd say maybe the more the mathematics has an influence from that standpoint, uh, in terms of sort of a degree of, uh, some desire of a degree of some element of precision in production. Um, even in composition, though, like some, if you yes. if you go one image back, like some of the compositions that you're making are, or sorry, two images, this one in particular, mm -hmm. but some of the other ones are so, um, yeah, the word is precise in terms of how you're balancing the composition, even the colors and the fidelity of the image. There's something clinical to it, or like highly mathematical about the way yeah. that you're creating an image. Yeah, aesthetically, I've certainly been drawn to symmetries within within the images that I produce oftentimes. So, um, like I, I don't know, I'm just drawn to a certain degree of vision, uh, balance within the vision of the image. So let's talk about the dirt piles. Yes. So I don't know if everyone here knows, but Edmonton is affectionately called Dirt City by many artists in this community. And so I have to credit Amelia Aspen Schultz McPherson and also Trevor Anderson, et cetera, who started Dirt City Records and all of these other projects. But just like John Waters calls Baltimore Charm City, the artists here call Edmonton Dirt City, kind of referencing in the spring, there's all this gravel in the roads. We have some fairly notable snow dirt mountains in each quadrant of the city where they scrape and recycle all of the gravel that melts. And these mountains, which are often like 12 stories high, are present all year round, even in the summer. So they look like giant dirt piles. And this is kind of part of the informal architecture of Edmonton. And it's also kind of connected to this nickname of artists being a little bit dismissive and a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek in saying that they're from Dirt City. And so this documentation in this project of you documenting in such detail a giant dirt pile is quite interesting. So I'd love to know more about how you arrived at thinking about these archetypes of the dirt mounds as subject matter. Uh, well, Without knowing that it was Dirt City right. here, that everyone was calling that informally. Yeah, I didn't know that nickname until today, actually. So. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I, the Dirt Mounds, I visually have found kind of quite interesting uh, over the years. So th this image in particular is from uh, 2008, I believe, in Spruce Grove, uh, where I grew up. <coughs> uh, and there, 
they're really visually engaging kind of structures. Like they're they're kind of an odd uh, influence in the landscape. In that they're they're improvised to some degree, not necessarily planned out as they as they stand. Uh, my understanding of them is that the practice now is when a subdivision goes in, uh, because the farm, because the land around here is usually prime farmland, uh, where a lot of the suburban expansion occurs, the, rather than just building on top of it, which used to be the old practice, the soil is now scraped off first, uh, which is often grade one topsoil, so it's prime, prime growing soil. It's scraped off and then turned into these these uh, mounds, which really sort of work as improvised land sculptures. So there's this long history with it from maybe from the 70s of earthworks uh, by various artists. I'm thinking of Smithson or Terrell or uh, I've always really liked the, a lot of the work of Maya Lin. Mm -hmm. And so these almost, you know, these could almost qualify as uh, intentional earthworks. But, found land works yeah, in a way, yeah, works, but, okay. Um, but of course they're not, they're actually an economical device, so they're, uh, it's to kind of preserve this material, but also then to commodify it and then sell it off. Right, um, black from, gold, yeah. yeah. From, a land, from an aesthetic standpoint, I think they're quite nice though, because they have, there's a symmetry to them, they're often built in the same, very similar way in terms of their shape. Uh, they're often quite large, so I think this one was three or four stories tall at, at its highest point. Uh, and then they sort of disappear, so they are sold off as bagged topsoil before the subdivision is actually built. Yeah. So that, that's kind of stuck in my head for a long time. Uh, as I say, this one was 2008, and then uh, when you suggested this project here, that sort of popped back in because it just happened that going back and forth to Spruce Grove, now there was another one of these earth mounds. Uh, which worked really nicely as a visual interruption in the landscape. Uh, going back to that idea of Dutch uh, landscape modification and sort of an improvised hill to break up sight lines, this, this dirt hill just happened to be there uh, and, and sort of spoke to me again as something to explore. Yeah, and it is quite interesting, like we're so accustomed to suburban growth and the development of these tract housing communities, et cetera, that it becomes quite normal to see large piles of dirt like this in different areas and you almost find them to be invisible like they're they are monumental they're huge and they're really shifting the landscape and the periphery of the spaces that we're driving and walking and living in yet we completely ignore them because we and always already know that they're just temporary and that eventually this land will be parceled out again, sold off in pieces and graded back into the backyards of all of the homes in that area. But it is true, other artists have been inspired by this previously. Hubert Hone um, documented Mill Woods and a lot of uh, suburban developments in Edmonton right around the time that one of the largest land annexation projects in Edmonton happened, where they annexed land from all of the suburban communities and kind of established the existing boundaries of the city of Edmonton as we know it. And this was a huge process. In fact, um, members of the public were at open city hall forums for almost 24 hours a day protesting this, but it was approved. And there have been attempts 
to do larger land annexations of some of the suburbs around Edmonton, including Spruce Grove, St. Albert, et cetera, that have failed since. But that was the big historic one which established the shape of the city of Edmonton as we now know it. And it increased the size of Edmonton by a third. Uh, which is a lot of land, and then all of that can be developed. Of course, now the Anthony Hende Ring Road is almost at that boundary. So we're at the point where they will be beginning conversations about major land annexation again. And so, you know, as you're driving that Ring Road in the full circle, you'll be able to see more and more of these kind of like forms in your peripheral vision. I know um, Talistone, which is one of the largest public artworks when I was working at the city of Edmonton. The artists who, Balnog Studio, who created that work, they were very interested also in these forms. And Talistone itself is a representation of the talus form, the way that dirt creates this kind of pile shape. And they tried to replicate it and they actually using um, models, but you can't precisely model how dirt accumulates in its perfect form. It actually is kind of an entropic process or a process based on chaos theory, you know, where you actually have to just pour the dirt and see how it accumulates naturally. So for that giant talus dome sculpture, they built an upside down wooden swimming pool, poured the silver balls in and welded them in place. They couldn't use computer technology to model that formation. It's, and so when I think about that, even mathematically, they couldn't generate it perfectly. It's another interesting way of thinking about the kind of mathematical accumulation of, or position of all the particles of dirt that create these forms. So there, there is kind of a bit of an artistic con context for work of this subject matter, so in the city. So I'm gonna go to the next one. Um, this this resonates in some way with this project as well because this was also from 2008 um, and actually from what's depicted in the installation this is from an area just sort of behind it uh, which is a subdivision that was going up at the time um, and I titled this this piece of it tongue in cheek is uh, pushing up daisies uh, at the time I was still living in Vancouver and sort of very much tied to this ideal of sort of uh, urban living, Vancouver urban living, I guess, and the idea of living in a, a detached suburban home. Um, For the rest of your life. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't really fit in my, in my mind at the time. Um, that's certainly shifted now with the family, but um, uh, but it's it does it, it does play into this as well in terms of uh, suburban expansion and uh, just sort of the process of land reclamation and, and, and uh, putting up these structures that also are not necessarily all that permanent. I mean, they're still wood frame houses and they have a very limited lifespan to attach them. So. This one is a good segue. Again, Rose wrote an incredible essay, and thank you. Um, but some of her references are about uh, the title of the work that we'll see tonight, Cyclorama, and this um, creation of almost like a peripheral backdrop or something of references to theater or staging or the set. And this image in particular, I think, begins this kind of also thread that links to facades and sets and things that look like temporary kind of setup or frontier style kind of facade driven architecture. 
Um, you know, when early settlements like Edmonton were created, a lot of the buildings had a false front. And if you look in the quarters, you can still see some buildings that have the wooden false front to give the kind of illusion of an extra story or a little bit of extra height at the front. When you come around the back, it, you know, the illusion collapses. But this image reminds me of that reference to your work about the stage and the set. So maybe yeah, you can go through the next. Sure. Well, just, just yeah. to that point too, I mean, it was, this, this installation in particular was tied to that idea of uh, there's a there is one strain of thought within landscape theory of uh, landscape as theater so this idea that the landscape is actually more of a staging environment in which you enact sort of an ideal of oneself upon it <clears throat> um, which again resonates back to the idea of within Canadian landscape of uh, sort of living this idealized version of rugged, natural Canadians going out into nature. And so nature itself has a stage upon which you kind of create this idealized version of yourself. Which is something to note when we do go inside Cyclorama. Uh, we noted this today during some interviews earlier in the afternoon, is that there isn't a single person. So really the viewer is the human element within this set that you've created. And although it represents a monumental kind of piece of this scraped topography against the suburban backdrop of an entire neighborhood, you can't see a single person. It's a very vacant landscape. And it's a vacant neighborhood that does look a little bit computer generated. I mean, the houses are grige, this kind of like whatever that color is between gray and beige, that, you know that color? <laughs> taupe, maybe it's taupe. Different degrees of taupe. And, you know, they're kind of, they look copy and pasted. The neighborhoods are this tract style housing, which, you know, is really straight suburban houses, as many as you can possibly fit in for more bang for your development dollar. And then the, um, the creation of cul-de-sacs and these kind of like um, turns within the suburban development landscape so they can fit in even more housing, kind of cram it in, but also give the illusion that it's a little bit of a more naturalized neighborhood feel, kind of mimicking the old um, spoken wheel way that communities would develop, develop around a city square. So, and, and there's and there's elements of sort of that falsified landscape in terms of building of uh, artificial ponds, and it's not quite as apparent in the background image, but part of that image there's actually a large, what I believe is a large water catchment, like an overflow catchment. But it's sort of acting as a natural park, natural and quotation marks park. This has all been constructed to, to fulfill that role. Um, and then it's also devoid of any trees because it's such a young neighborhood. So it's sort of that's another strange aspect. Yeah, I used to love reading in some of the development packages that you see to the city of Edmonton, it'll describe catchment or drainage basins as also recreation ponds. You know, this kind of like two for one, like it'll, you know, in a tornado, it'll catch all the water and all of, you know, major spring showers and things like that, and it'll fill up. But it also is for ducks and other, you know, natural things, kind of like yeah. very convenient. So <laughs> we'll do the last few and then. Sure. Yeah. Um, we, I, I'll just kind of skip to these. these so this piece uh, fits into a, a long-term series of works uh, that I sort of retroactively titled um, Transient Architecture for New Tomorrows, um, which really started with, 
this piece, which was the first one to really realize that it's full scale. This is my, my grad piece in my car. Uh, this is number five. Um, and I sort of felt that the previous works fit into it as a, as a series at that point, so I, I retroactively titled them as, as numbers one through four. Um, but I've had this long-term interest uh, in playing, while investigating landscape, also playing with the photograph in terms of how it's received and, and its ways presented. So disrupting the standards, print in a frame, as much as I produce a lot of in frame work as well. Um, my ideal is to kind of work on a larger scale and, and interrupt uh, that standard planar form of the photograph and, and add another element to it. Uh, and there's various influences in that, including things like museum dioramas and architectural forms, uh, theatrical devices, as in, as in this case. But what you, you can see here actually in this detail is all of the wooden framing that goes behind it to kind of give a structure to the image. And this reference is definitely apparent in Cyclorama. Um, the kind of wooden backdrop or support that lends kind of a whole other dimension to the photograph and kind of links the construct of the subject matter to what you're actually presenting as an image. So I find that really strong in this work that you see, but maybe you can tell us, because we'll have to go in two groups to see the work, a little bit about the research that you did in creating the support structures for Cyclorama? Uh, so in, in this case, I, I, I specifically wanted to reference uh, theatrical staging. Um, so Cyclorama is, uh, is a theatrical term for a, usually a large curved backdrop in a theater stage. Um, so in this case, there are two uh, curved backdrops, um, not necessarily as large as they would be in an actual theater. Certain. I also, as much as I work from precision to some degree, I also work from a practical standpoint. So there are limitations in what what can be realized at times. Um, so the <clears throat> structure in this case, uh, they're printed on fabric as a as a theatrical backdrop would normally be would be on fabric, although not usually to this high degree of detail. Um, I, I wanted that detail to kind of push the immersive nature of it and because it's in a art gallery context you do you work with or you engage with the work much more directly than you would in a theater um, and then the structural support itself is based on uh, theatrical supports so these are uh, based on a design for what are called uh, flatjacks which are standard forms that are applied to the back of usually panels that are used in theatrical backdrops and it's uh, a rod and curtain system that I improvised to actually hold up the, the backdrop in this case. The photo? Yeah. Do you have one more to show? Um, Is that the last one? Well, let's talk about the, per the long kind of peripheral vision and then we'll have to probably go in for time yeah. reasons. But this idea of the, the image that extends beyond your own field of vision, I think is also an important part of this work. So because you have the two kind of ellipses of the cyclorama presented together, the work encompasses you. When you stand in front of it, it curves around and you really can see part of the work in your periphery. And this idea of a landscape that extends well beyond your field of vision on both sides is something that you've been developing over time. And Maybe you can talk a little bit also about the technical details of how you're approaching that, because 
um, it's quite interesting, your process to create such a high fidelity image that is so large and so long and, uh, and keep that kind of standard consistent through the whole field of the, of the image. Uh, well, again, going back to this sort of this ongoing series, I've been really interested in, in uh, pushing the immersiveness of the photograph. So this idea of, of some degree of suspended disbelief in which you engage with the artwork and uh, almost become an actor within the staging of the work, but you can kind of project on it as if it's a representation of reality, even though it's obviously in a gallery context and it's very artificial. Um, and to, to get that degree of suspended disbelief, my sense is that you need, you need a, quite a bit of detail in it. If it becomes too soft or uh, it just doesn't hold up as an image when you engage with it closely then it's harder it just becomes more abstract in some way so from a technical standpoint i i photograph for for these scale of works i photograph on an 8 by 10 camera so the film itself is 8 by 10 inches um, so it's very large not comparable to what can be done digitally for the most part unless you have a very substantial digital budget uh, which I do not, so. Um, so I shoot these on film and then go through a digital process in terms of getting them ready for printing and, and use. Um, in the case of this installation, uh, each of the two panels was actually made out of, uh, had three 8x10 exposures each, um, which is, creates a substantially large amount of information. Uh, the foreground one is actually only one and a half because there just is enough gallery space to present the entire dirt, dirt hill. Uh, but the background one, you can have some sense of how much information is in there. Um, and the printing process on this fabric doesn't quite capture all of this detail that could be there uh, that's in the original, just because of the nature of how it's produced. But it is a, it is a working process that, is, that <clears throat> I'm still tied to uh, sort of the some of the aesthetic qualities of film in terms of how it reproduces color and uh, the granularity of it and the degree of detail that can be captured that doesn't translate in the same way in, in digital processes. And particularly in creating works of this scale, uh, it would be almost impossible for me to do digitally. So. That's awesome. Is there any last notes you want to say before we go in to see the exhibition? Uh, no. No? <laughs> okay. Not occur to me, no. Well, maybe you can join me in thanking Blaine, and then we are going to go in in two groups of about 20 people. The capacity of the gallery is only 20 people because of the large scale of the work that you'll be seeing. And then afterwards, we invite you to join us in the main lobby, where we'll have speeches and have the opening reception for the other exhibitions that are opening tonight. But at this point, I think we should thank Blaine for all of his work, and I'm excited to see you. Thank you.